good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and we're coming to you on EWTN Radio. And uh, we're coming broadcasting you from the Coming Home Network International Studios. This is our weekly program in which we take some time to invite a guest to discuss an important uh, scripture, a, a particular text that drew them deeper to Jesus Christ and his church. Sometimes that's a verse that our guest never saw. It was a particular scripture that they were unaware of before, even though they loved Christ and were deeply committed to scripture. Or it was a, a particular verse that they came to see in a deeper, more clear way as a result of their journey to the church. And just a reminder that this program is connected to a website. If you go to chnetwork.org, that's the website for the Coming Home Network, you can l- click to the Deep in Scripture link. You can watch this program live. You can listen to all the old programs. You can follow along with today's Scripture. Our guest for today is Mr. Jeff Hendricks. He's a former United Methodist pastor. He's come into the church, let's see, when you came into the church about 10 years ago. And uh, he was a pastor, I think, for about 20 years, Correct. approximately yeah. there. And he's now serving as a sixth grade teacher at a Catholic school, St. Charles, and is certified for the Virginia Catholic Educator Association. He um, graduated from Duke, the, the, uh, the, the Methodist Seminary at Duke. Um, he has an advanced catechist certificate from the Diocese of Arlington, serves as a homeroom teacher. He's a cancer survivor, the author of a small book of life lessons on coping with terminal illness. Jeff is the father of two sons, Andrew and Maxwell, and as he describes it, the grandfather of the world's most beautiful granddaughter, uh, Aaliyah. 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 Let me get that right. And it's good to have him here today. He's chosen a great passage of Scripture. Romans 7, 12 through 25. And it's a, a very good passage. And I will say it's one of those that has a great variety of interpretations depending upon which philosophical and theological background you come from. Some people have a very difficult time with this passage because they believe that once you've committed and surrendered to Jesus Christ, that you've arrived, and these kinds of problems that St. Paul discusses in Romans 7 shouldn't be happening anymore. Some people believe that if you're still struggling with these problems, then you haven't fully converted to Jesus Christ. On the other hand, especially from the Catholic perspective, and I think maybe even more from the Wesleyan perspective, possibly, and we'll look at that in a moment, that these particular passage, on the and I think more correctly, express the continuing struggle that everyone has as they seek to follow Christ and to grow in holiness. Because as long as we're on this side of heaven, we will deal with sin. We will deal with our fallen nature. And how we understand that battle is crucial. If you come from the perspective that I did previously when I was a Presbyterian pastor and believe in the once saved, always saved mentality, then to a certain extent these verses in Romans 7 become irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. I've arrived in Jesus Christ. Now I only look forward to a salvation which I know is coming and there's nothing I can do to lose it. That was my background. Now that's not where Jeff comes from. He's from a Methodist background and a Wesleyan perspective that recognized this continual struggle. So the passage that I'm dealing with, I haven't even mentioned yet. It's Romans 7, 12 through 25. As I read this, you need to remember that this is St. Paul speaking in the present to Christians. He's not speaking to a non-Christian audience. He's speaking to men and women who have already surrendered to Jesus Christ, have already experienced 
the Holy Spirit as a result of their baptism, and they've been renewed in the Spirit. But And he has too. Paul has received this new life in Christ, baptism, the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying is that the battle continues. The battle continues, which he confirms in this book of Ephesians, in his letter of Galatians, in Philippians, all of these books, he recognizes the continuing need to put behind us and move onward, a continuous journey. So let me read these, the uh, scriptures that Jeff has chosen for us today. Then we'll take a break and he will, he'll join us. So again, this is Paul speaking to Christians in the present. He's not talking about the past. He's talking about right now. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sin beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will where it is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that what that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve with the law of sin. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former atheist Dr. Kevin Vost to the show. See how the Holy Spirit led him to make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodite's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at one 800 664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Jeff Hendricks. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, it's also particularly good to have you in the studio here. Often when I do the program, I'm over the telephone with someone, but you're here because you were also here to... Uh, uh, produce a journey home program uh which will it's not going to be broadcast this week we broadcast in in the near future but but thanks a lot you know in that program jeff you were able to to give your journey into the church and i don't 
want you to completely relate all of that right now, but I'm wondering, in relationship to this scripture that you've chosen, would it be good to share a little bit of your journey as a bit of a background to why you chose this passage? Um, I will begin by saying that uh, G.K. Chesterton observed that he came into the church, the Catholic church, into full communion because he needed a church that would tell him not where he was right, but where he was wrong. And this is completely 180 (laughs) degrees different than most of the spirit of our age. You know, the spirit of the age wants uh, a church that will agree with me, that will pat me on the back and say, I'm doing okay. You know, I came, I showed up, that's all I need to do. Uh, This passage, and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit convicted me, I needed a church that told me where I was wrong. And so I'm very grateful for that. When did you deal with this passage when you were a Methodist pastor? Do you remember how you dealt with it and uh, how you understood it in the past? Uh, I'll tell you quite tr- honestly, uh, Marcus, I would use this as a skipping stone to get to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was a springboard. It wasn't something that we dwelled long on. Right. Uh, I probably could have from a Methodist point of view in terms of sanctification that the Holy Spirit begins with us through prevenient grace, those the first knockings and wooings mm-hmm. that draw us toward God's kingdom, um, converting grace, and then sanctifying grace. That's classic uh, John Wesley. Yeah. Uh, but as a Catholic, it had a much more profound effect on me as I was being wooed into the Catholic Church um, on s- several levels. One, I was convicted of sin. Uh, I agree with uh, St. Paul, verse yeah. 14, I am carnal, soul under sin. Yeah. I felt that in my bones. And I felt the need for absolution that I have only found in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the passages that, that jump out at me, uh, Jeff, in this, and, uh, you know, as, as I told you before, we got an air. I really want you to guide us through this and how you've come... But I, I can't escape why I believe that this passage is so important to our culture today. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that the majority of our culture, the majority of, of even the Christians that come and sit in the pews on any given Sunday, have a handle on how to deal with this kind of regular spiritual battle that Paul is dealing with in this passage the voices in our lives that try to get us to do all kinds of things that really pull us away from God. It's, it's almost a schizophrenic problem. Um, I see it in students, even in Catholic schools. Um, they will affirm, as we're walking through studies of the creed, studies of salvation history, and then you see them at recess or you hear their language, you hear their values, you know their values are not in line with what they're studying in religion. Uh, it, it's troubling to see kind of a schizoid, but it's not youth and what can I say? Students uh, don't fall very far from the tree. You, you, <laughs> you get what you get at home. I mean, the domestic church is or is not helping to produce healthy fruit. Probably as we jump into this passage, we recognize, of course, that this snippet out of Romans is 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 a part of a long flow of an argument that Paul is dealing with in all of Romans. So, to a certain extent, to make sure we have the context, uh, Jeff, it begins right off the bat. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. One of the overall contexts in this whole thing is this emphasis between the law, right, or grace, you know, this, this, this battle. So maybe help the audience at least here. We've landed in the midst of a context of, of Paul's argument here. What, is it, what does he mean by the laws? is holy. Why does he need to say that? Right. Well, you're right to back up and look at the, the bigger picture. Uh, verse 12, where Paul says, so the law is holy. Let's go way back. Uh, Dr. Hahn would say we're looking at the covenantal relationship between God, Yahweh, he is who is, 
when he gives us the, the law, um, way back on Mount Sinai to, to Moses. Um, why was that necessary? Because the children of Israel were just recently brought out of slavery in Egypt where they were you know, up to their necks in paganism. Um, whether human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, all kinds of idolatry going on, they knew somehow that they had uh, inherited a more important entity and more important identity as those who were there because of Joseph, when Joseph was the vizier of, of Pharaoh and highly accepted, but now they were downtrodden. So God pulls him into the wilderness God keeps them out there for quite a while because he's got to get rid of the residue of the paganism. Uh, he presents them with the law. And for them, is this a hardship? No, they're going, oh, thank you. <laughs> now we know what is right and what is wrong. Uh, someone has said the law is sort of like uh, the chalk that a, a police officer would draw on the line to see if a person was drunk or not, you know, <laughs> uh, in those days before breathalyzers. If you could walk that line, if you could keep the law, then you're okay. You're sane and civil. But if you couldn't keep the law, then you knew you were living outside of the covenantal relationship with God. So the commandment, Paul says, is holy, just, and good. And remember, this whole passage is written not by Saul of Tarsus. As you said, this is not pre-conversion of St. Paul. This is St. Paul. Now he's speaking you know, present tense. Uh, and so it's happening to him now. I think the, the difficult for, uh, part for us to realize is in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. There's a big misunderstanding there if we're not careful. The misunderstanding is to jump into an almost Gnostic uh, error of saying that matter is evil. Well, matter is absolutely not evil. Expand on it. Just a Gnostic may be new to our audience. Sure. What that term refers to. But it's an excellent point. A Gnosticism um, would have said that, and it was an early foe of the early church. It happened quickly, and it has battled Orthodox yeah. Christian faith, right up to and including the present. Um, it it would, says several things. One, that you can, through a secret knowledge given to only a, a select few, um, attain salvation. That's absolutely wrong. By our very being made in God's image, imago dei, every single human being has the right and privilege of salvation. That's right. biblical. The other thing is, Gnosticism generally tends to say matter is evil. Okay, matter is evil. Um, as you rise into the pleroma, this is the, their technical term for um, a pantheon of gods and demigods leading up to a, a pinnacle of a god who would never sully his hands with creation. Okay, they would say that some demigod, some bumbling demiurge, created earth and it's matter and it's, you know, it's full of putrefaction and things that we want to extricate ourselves from. The, our, our creeds themselves, both Apostles and Nicene, were written specifically to counter this. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, saying, no, our God, the one God, Holy Trinity, created all that is, and the book of Genesis says, saw all that is and said it is very good, completely counter to the, the Gnostic tendency. So Paul isn't talking about saying, I'm carnal, therefore sold under sin because matter is evil. He's not saying that. He's saying we are carnal and sold under sin because this is an effect of original sin. We are a fallen human race. The doctrine of original sin says God created everything that was and, and made it very good. And we, through our own disobedience in Adam and Eve, the original sin, fell from that grace. And through our bodies, we have continued that and perpetrated that sin ever since. So there's a big difference between saying with the Gnostics that matter is evil and Orthodox Christian faith saying that we have fallen and our our sin has created this dichotomy. But <laughs> the Christian faith says God's grace can perfect nature, 
can redeem nature. And um, there's a certain extent probably when behind this, Paul writing to these Christians in Rome mm -hmm. that with these alternative interpretations floating around them, the voices in the lives of these Roman Christians, the rise of Gnosticism that was at the time, as well as the pagan voices. After baptism, I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul writes in his other letters, and then I sin again. What's wrong here? I'm guessing he's trying to address that issue. How do I understand after I've been made a new creation, I've accepted Jesus, the old is gone, the new has come, I stand before God now, but I still have those temptations, I still have those problems. What is wrong with me? Mm, exactly, exactly. And Paul, I think, is helping, is trying to connect with the Christians of his time who were experiencing this same thing. He was saying, I've got the same problem. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I connect with you. Okay, so he was doing this pastorally, but not in that wishy-washy, it's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, uh, just know. Yep. What the hey? <laughs> <laughs> you know, our Lord said to the woman taken in adultery, and notice that they didn't bring the fellow along, that's kind of interesting, <laughs> um, go and sin no more after he forgave her. So he's saying, I'm gonna give you the grace to sin no more. And I hope that resonates with our listeners because that's what our Lord today gives us in the sacrament of penance. We are given that grace to go and sin no more. Uh, personally, this is one of the greatest moments of liberation in my life. Um, before my confirmation into uh, the Catholic Church, I went to uh, receive confession and it was kind of interesting the father didn't let me get through my whole list of sins before, <laughs> before he cut me off. Um, but in that list of sins, without getting personal, there were things I wanted to be forgiven of, re receive absolution for, that I never wanted to have to confess to a priest again. Hmm. And I think it takes that kind of conviction. I'm not going to have to do this again. End of story. Case closed. If you don't have that, as I think I've heard you say, you know, uh, whatever, if, you, if you're an alcoholic and you're swearing in the morning, you're never going to take another drink, and it's 8 p.m. and things are slow, that bottle's going to look mighty good. It's going to take that wherewithal, that grace, that fortitude, the uh, virtue of fortitude, not to go back and delve into it again. And we're going to take a break here in a moment, but uh, uh, Jeff, when we get back, I, I'd like us... It, it, that is, if you're willing to ready to go to this place in this text, because verses 15 through um, at least 19, if not 20, I'm looking real quickly, deal with Paul's inner struggle with those voices. And those of you listening, maybe there's none of you out there that have this problem. In other words, you make a commitment to yourself as well as others that Either you're going to quit drinking or you're going to quit smoking or you're going to quit eating in a certain way. Or let's say I'm tomorrow I'm going to exercise. Whatever it is, whether these are very just commitments you want to make or whether you're dealing with very bad habits in your life that are destroying you, that's one thing to say in your mind, in your intellect, I'm going to do that. But most of us realize, I assume we all think this way and experience the battle inside of us. When maybe in the, in the morning, you are easily able to say, I wish I hadn't had two minutes to drink last night. I'll not do that tonight. And then when the evening comes, there's the battle. Or say in the evening, you say, I'm not going to keep having... 15 cups of coffee in the morning. I'm not going to have my morning coffee. And then when the morning comes, there's this bat. What are you fighting against? What is that other voice? Let's talk about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I am joined today by Jeffrey Hendricks. And you're hearing us on EWTN, 
your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you too will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Jeffrey Hendricks, former United Methodist pastor. We're looking at Romans 7, 12-25. It's always hard just to pull a, a paragraph out of the Bible uh, because it's in the context of a longer le letter, Jeff. We know that. And so we encourage you uh, listeners to take time to look at the entire chapter 7, chapter 8 of Romans, look at even the background earlier, especially beginning with chapter 5 when he recognized that now since we've been justified by faith, that he's, Paul's already said he's been justified by faith, but immediately he talks about the spiritual battle and the place of suffering. And that's what he's dealing with here. I'd like to read verse 15 and 19 because they seem to set the stage for this question which I posed just before the break. Paul says, and as I read this, those of you listening, have you ever asked yourself this very question? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. All right, Jeff, that is a... <clears throat> I mean, for the, we have to begin, first of all, with the assumption that to a certain extent we think a little bit alike, all of us. Hmm. It isn't just me left alone in this journey. We're hmm. all there. But this is really a universal problem. It is. Um, it is a universal problem, but I feel very strongly that each one of our sets of sin symptomology are unique. Okay, so the Lord, the Holy Spirit has to work very individually with our sets of symptomology of sin. Going back further, let's go into the Gospels. Yep. Um, Jesus is approaching the tomb of Lazarus. He's waited for whatever reason he wanted to, and he meets up with Lazarus' sisters, and she is grieving. Now, now think of this. You've got Mary. Um, I believe it was Mary first, was it, or was it Martha? Was Martha the first one he met? Uh, uh, Mary is there anointing her his feet. Well, I'm, I'm talking about when Lazarus was in oh, the Oh, yes, of tomb. course. Yeah, yeah, I think. Okay, I, yeah. Okay, so, so he meets with the sister of Lazarus, right. and think of what she's looking at. She's got the tomb on one side, and then she's got the way, the truth, and the life embodied uh -huh. in yes. front of her. Uh -huh. And right now, for this moment, evil is winning. She is destitute. She is weeping because she thinks nothing can help her brother. And the scripture is very interesting. The, the Greek term there, it says, and Jesus wept. But if you look at the Greek, it's one interpretation is that it's more like Jesus snorted in indignation <laughs> because he sees that death is winning in the heart of his mm -hmm. daughter here. Okay? Mm -hmm. So sin is devious. Sin and evil is sneaky. It, it likes to come at us with a little different disguise this time, wrapped up and, and say, no, I'm com something completely different and we fall into it again. Okay, so it always it's the same symptomology, but it looks a little different and we fall into it again. And the church in its wisdom says that Christ is present in the priest 
And if you take the sacrament of confession seriously, you're going to give that priest, you're going to give Christ in that priest all of your sin to be absolved. If you go into confession, I'm not going to share everything. You're making it harder on yourself, but you're making it harder on Christ because of our free will. We can freely not accept God's grace offered to us, and we don't want to go there. A couple of verses just to throw in here as we're going along, uh, Jeff, in this. Uh, I'll go ahead and read them to the audience. Is behind this inner battle that he's talking about, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, um, beginning with verse 8, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. So that addresses what traditionally has been said, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the voices, right? Um, in this particular text that we're dealing with in Romans, he's particularly dealing with that third voice of the flesh that the devil can use to try and distract us from being totally uh, surrendered to Jesus Christ. The other one I'll throw in, just as a, another background verse, is 1 John 2, which is an important verse in that first letter of John. When when John writes, after he's told them, if we confess our sins, we are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, my little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. And the implication there, Jeff, is that though we have a fallen nature as a result of original sin and our own sin, that what he is implying is that by grace, we can grow in obedience to turn away from these sinful battles, right? As a Protestant, I wouldn't have been comfortable with the idea that I could ever actually live on this side of heaven. But the point is that in grace, as we've surrendered, we can grow and grow to resist but the moment we think we've arrived, we've lost. I mean, and that you know what I'm saying? Most of, moments we say I'm without sin, then John says you're a liar and you really don't know yourself, right? Exactly. And, you know, John Paul II, and I'm sure um, uh, Benedict XVI probably goes to confession once a week. <laughs> you know, if you can imagine the Pope going to confession once a week, yeah. that's, that's a recognition <laughs> of our universal fallenness. St. Paul makes this juxtaposition between the flesh, sarks, and the spirit, tama, um, and no better, nowhere better than in his uh, letter of, to the Galatians, chapter five, where he speaks about the fruit of both. Oh yes. Um, but before we get there, uh -huh. the recognition of the sarks of flesh—that's the Greek word for it—the church really does a great uh, taxonomy of this. He, the church defines it in the catechism as the disordered passions, okay? Uh, older term, concupiscence, the original Greek, epithumia, okay? Um, and those disordered passions in our present day and age are things that progressive liberalism, progressive humanism, actually functional atheism, which doesn't acknowledge yeah. any outside source of revealed truth, says, if you feel like doing something, go for it. Okay, Th This is sort of like That's saying... the real me That's speaking the, out. the authentic you. you know, it, <laughs> I have the honor and privilege of teaching a Catholic school where we don't look at things that way. Okay, It would be like teaching chemistry class by saying, go into the lab, kids, uh, create your own compounds. If you happen to blow yourself up, well, at least it was an authentic search. <laughs> no, no, we don't teach chemistry that right. way. We shouldn't teach teach faith and morals that way either. And in the in the spiritual walk, we recognize that, for example, the reason the church calls us to fast 
is because we're trying to train the will yep. to be able to withstand, well, to do what Paul wants to be able to do. By grace, we enable the will to be able to say no to things and to say yes to things. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about it's a continual battle. And again, how seriously does the Catholic believer take the sacrament of penance? If I believe that Christ is present in my priest, then I don't want to have to confess these same old drudging, drudgingly ugly sins to that priest again and again. I, I pity the poor priests who have to listen to them again. Um, and so in my case, before my entrance into uh, Mother Church through confirmation, I said, these are sins I only want to have to confess once. I never want to have to do that again. Case closed. End of story. And I praise God that the Spirit has given me enough grace not to have to do that again. Um, So it's not just St. Paul. It's us. 2011, each one of us are facing the same battle between the flesh and the Spirit. As you mentioned earlier that we live in a culture that doesn't recognize these things happening to us. And when you think about the the battle of that, that if you don't realize it, then you can't resist it. Mm -hmm. If, If we have a culture that believes that, well, for example, young children whose conscience has not been formed yet can be very driven by flesh, their passions, what their senses want them to do. So that's why, as parents, it's our responsibility to guide them. We can't just let them go out there and do whatever their senses tell them to do, become feral children, just running by their nature. That's our responsibility as parents, which is why we have to discipline our children to make sure they learn what's right or wrong. We can't lean on their reason yet. It will come. Now, you're teaching sixth grade. And my guess is that's right about the time when their reason starts to kick in a little more. Is that right? I mean, Some more, some less. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they understand very well um, the doctrine of original sin, the fall. Uh, for example, I'll tell them, now, <clears throat> what if I were to say to you, uh, Mr. Hendricks has, has to leave the room just for a moment. Whatever you do, you can do anything in this classroom you want to, just don't touch this chair. I'll be right back. <laughs> what would everyone want to do? Their hands all shoot up. They know, touch the chair, touch the chair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they understand uh, morality very much. But, you know, teaching the golden rule, C.S. Lewis observed, everyone knows when you're done unto. It's the hard training of teaching children to not do unto others what you would not want them to do unto you. That's the chore. And of course, we know that it's not just children in our society. Every beer beer commercial, (laughs) every uh, commercial you practically saw last night on the Super Bowl dealt with getting my way above everyone else's. Um, I know this isn't directly in the text, but you made me think about it when you were talking about helping those young children uh, move forward in their faith. Uh, Traditionally, Catholic teaching has dealt with what's called servile fear of God Mm. and filial fear of God as an expression of of our spiritual growing closer to God. And when we're dealing with sin, like he's talking about in this passage, Right, we be, servile fear is I'm not going to do this because I'm going to get punished if I do it. Filial fear is I'm not going to do it because I want to stand before God and, and receive His blessing, His pleasure. And we experience that as fathers with our kids, right? So at some point, our kids decide they they're they're wanting to obey us because they don't want to get spanked or whatever it is we use to punish them. But eventually, we hope they get to the point that the reason they do obey is because they want our pleasure. And and that's exactly what it was like with the, the children of Israel. That, what are the Ten Commandments? But don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And only later, it's progressive 
yeah. Um, yeah. growth among the people of God, the covenantal people of God, to knowing that um, the commandments are like uh, ropes that hold a, a vessel from dashing itself against the rocks. Okay, it, it, one will tug on you a little bit, but it's always, always meant to keep you in place so that you aren't, uh, you don't damage yourself beyond repair. That's God's love for us. That's a father's love for a child. And so there's nothing wrong with being servile at first. I mean, it brings a lot of people in the right it's direction. Necessary. Absolutely, absolutely necessary. Because I think that's what's wrong with our culture is we've thrown out that idea. Yeah. And even amongst many Protestant groups, I don't know about your Wesleyan background, but I know at least in my particular Calvinist group background, is we interpreted Paul to mean that the law is passed. Mm. Now it's a life of faith. That was Luther's whole idea. But the reality is that would be like saying, now that I've moved and matured in my unity with Jesus Christ, I don't need those laws anymore. Yeah, I think that's only on the other side of purgatory, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly right. And, you know, I'm 58 years old, and I'm hoping that some of the temptations of my past are no longer there. But there are many times when I'm very grateful, when I'm tempted, that at least a part of my reason to say no is because there's a little bit of servile fear left in there. Because we may have, you and me, Jeff, may have surrendered to Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that tomorrow we couldn't go out and do something that would send us straight to hell. Because the temptation is there for everyone in this world right. to turn our backs on God. Yeah, and, <clears throat> and there are gradations between that and filial. Okay, yeah. so I, I consider myself a little bit past servile, you know, except in my worst moments. Um, but still in the place where I would be ashamed to have to confess this again to a, another human being in the form of a priest who is yeah. Jesus in the presence. So there's nothing wrong with shame. Nothing. Those, these, are, these are feelings that sometimes we wonder, do children have any more being ashamed? Uh, you know, fear of losing face, or are they just indifferent to that? You know, are, are they, have they been so trained in self-esteem that they are incapable of feeling shame over misbehavior? For those that don't understand purgatory, which I certainly didn't before I became a Catholic, and I'm still growing in, in all my understanding of it, but it, it's not a, a third place that's a negative, or let's say less negative than hell. It, in reality, is a place that I'm glad is there because by the mercy and grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, I, as, as a result of surrendering my sin to him and confessing my sin and being washed clean of the guilt of my sin, if I die in gr that grace without a mortal sin that I have turned my back on God and done something that of which I would deserve eternal punishment. I will stand before him, but the results of my sin remain in my flesh. Mm -hmm. And purgatory is the means of washing that away so I can stand before him without embarrassment. That's a gift. Yes. Um, St. Augustine said that sin, sinning is like being shot in the leg by, with an arrow. When you go to confession, that is, the absolution pulls the arrow out of your leg, but it's still wounded. It still needs healing. Uh, and that's kind of a poor analogy, but not really. We still have the temporal punishment, the expiation to go through from our sinning. And that's, that's what purgatory is about. I checked this image out with uh, uh, Sister Patricia Aline Earle, who was at that time the uh, superintendent of our Office of Catholic Schools in Arlington, and she said that this will do. Um, the way I look at it, and I've, I've heard you say something similar, is that we've been given an invitation to a grand ball, okay? A grand ball. We've got our invitation in hand, but we're dressed in rags and filth and squalor. We would be ashamed and, and mortified to show up at the ball like this. So purgatory is where we get cleaned up. And it is not without pain, not without sorrow, not without immense growth that has to take place. But God loves us enough not to usher us into the grand ball looking like this. <laughs> so once we're ready, you know, so purgatory are the foothills of heaven. You're in. 
you're in. All right, Jeff, let's take another break. We'll come back in a moment. There's an awful lot to cover in this passage, of course, but one thing I want to make sure we cover is the full significance of verse 25. So maybe we'll at least get to there before we end our program today, but let's take a break right now. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Crodi, joined today by Jeffrey Hendricks, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Jeffrey Hendricks. We've been looking at Romans chapter 7, 12 through 25, and what we'd like to do in the remainder here, uh, you know, the, the verse 25 says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, that is how we're delivered from this body of death. But Jeff said particularly he wanted to draw our attention to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through, which one did you say? 20? 25. 25. I won't read all that because of time, but, but you go ahead and, and pull out of it what you want. Jeff, because it talks about our walking by the Spirit versus the walking by the flesh. Yeah, it, it really shows that Paul is not talking about matter when he talks about flesh, uh, because God made matter. It is yep. very good. Rather, he's talking about the disordered passions that result from our fall as human beings. And he says, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the work of the flesh are plain, immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. All right. There, in fact, that last line in some ways is a, a very important key, isn't it, Jeff? Because... We live by the Spirit as a result of our baptism and faith. Mm -hmm. We're new creatures because the Spirit of God has come to dwell within us, is changing us from the inside out. Mm -hmm. But our will must be engaged. Mm -hmm. We are still to walk by it. We have to walk the walk, walk the talk, not just talk the talk. Yeah. 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 And the he, he makes a very important statement here. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But I've been saved in Jesus Christ. I can point back to the day and the hour. What if I do these things? Marcus, I don't for the life of me understand why <laughs> doctors, lawyers, accountants who've been trained in the worldly arts, to great extents, PhDs, you know, everything else, suddenly think that the four spiritual laws is all they need. <laughs> that God just says, oh yeah, you know, believe in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, boom. Paul's saying it's not that easy. You have to have the fruit of that belief, the fruit of grace perfecting your nature so that it is what you are becoming, okay? You are becoming more perfectly an image made in my image, God says. Um, the process of sanctification means our cooperating with God's grace, not just, um, what did Luther call it, you know, uh, snow on a, on a dunghill. Uh -uh. The hill has to be sanctified. 
We have to really be changed in our natures. Uh, you're coming from a Methodist background, uh, myself from a Lutheran and a Calvinist background. And I think it is that most, at least Lutheran and Calvinists, cannot deal with the mystery of the both and. They've got the sovereignty of God on one hand, which lifts God so high, he's beyond our conception, yeah. and the depravity of man, which puts us in so far in the other direction. And just as you said, that is neo-Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And as a convert, I, I hesitate to say this, but I think Catholics often will fall into the equal and opposite thing of thinking that their anthropology, their view of mankind is so high, and their Christology, their view of our Lord Jesus Christ is so low that we can just do this when we will it. We don't need grace. You know, Let's have social justice. Great. Well, but don't forget, you've got to worship God in spirit and in truth, too. You've got to have the transcendence. It doesn't just come because you will it. That's Pelagianism, another heresy from way back when. We're giving this grace, the, the very divine life of God that comes to dwell within us through the gift of the Spirit, through baptism, through the sacraments that enable our wills to respond. But it's always this partnership. Mm -hmm. it, it's always this, this partnership, which is why we need to be a part of the body and not individualistic. Exactly. And <clears throat> our free will, which is part of our being made in God's image, is something that we literally can turn off God's grace if we want to. C.S. Lewis said, and others have said, well, I liked his phrase the best, hell has no locks on its gates. The only people who are there are the ones who want to be there, who want to be completely out of God's presence. We have to cooperate with God's grace if we want it to flower in our lives and change us from the inside out. So it ends up being a, a variety of presumptions. There's those that presume once saved, always saved, and, and then therefore are no longer conscious of this need to examine their continual sinfulness. There are those, let's say Catholics, that presume when I go to Mass every Sunday, I've done all this, I've arrived. It's, it involves our will to be different. So it's a constant battle. But thank God, as Paul said, wretched man that I am who will deliver me, Jesus Christ. Giving due where it is due. That's justice. Jeff, thank you so much. An honor. Time flies. We'll have to have you back. We have more discussion on this. But God bless you and your work with the sixth graders. You know, what a great gift that is for you to do that. Thank you for your ministry, Marcus. This is excellent. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And those of you for joining us, I pray that this has been an encouragement to you. Check out all the Deep in Scripture programs. God bless you. See you next week.